Let me add my welcome to you today. It's good to, to be with you. I'll be preaching from uh, the first chapter of Luke. We're continuing our series um, in Luke. And uh, as we kind of come uh, towards the event of, of Christ's birth, uh, we see the narrative leading up to, to what happens there. And uh, what's going to frame our narrative is, is three particular hand positions uh, that frame our passage today. Um, hands that hold, hands that let go, and hands that will not let go. So hopefully my hands will not be too distracting to you, but let that be something that, that frames um, what we're going to look at today. Hands that hold, hands that let go, and hands that will not let go. So first of all, hands that hold. Verse 57 says this, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Elizabeth and Zechariah welcome their newborn son. They hold him in their hands. If they were anything like Miriam and I, they would have realised that while they did not, uh, while they did have a role in that initial process, there was actually so much that they had very little control over as the baby grew in Elizabeth's womb. Yes, it's the size of a grape, and then the size of an avocado, and then more than that. But bones are forming, hair is growing, brains are developing. When the baby arrives, we were counting feet and toes. You're glad to hear those lungs. You get over the fact that the baby is slightly blue and more than slightly messy. It feels crazy what it did to me. Holding any kind of baby is remarkable, but holding your first, your own, is surreal. Every birth feels astounding, but this birth was out of the ordinary. Elizabeth was much older, had never conceived, and it had been announced by an angel to Zechariah as he had been chosen to work a prestigious job in the temple. Oh, and uh, Zechariah had been mute since this angel's announcement. Unable to speak, the only consolation would have been getting out of a lot of jobs before the baby was born. So in our scene, you wouldn't have heard Zechariah's voice, but it was not quiet. The neighbours and family are there too in verse 58. I don't know what kind of party they would have had back then, but there would have been great rejoicing. It says this, And her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. The baby had arrived, they had him in their hands, he could fit in their hands, they were showing him round. Elizabeth's eyes, aren't they beautiful? He's got Zechariah's mouth, yay! He's got Zechariah's nose, mm, I guess that's okay. But there was much rejoicing and delight. And amidst the learning on the job for the new parents and savouring of the fulfilment of God's promises to them and they believed to Israel, they had in their hands their long-awaited, long-time longed-for baby of theirs. They also realised that this baby and its, his birth echoed a series of extraordinary births in Israel's history where the pattern emphasised this truth that God would achieve salvation in his own way so that all would know that it was him who had done it. I wonder what you have in your hands right now that you can savour uh, with gladness and delight, that you can lift up in celebration like Mufasa does in The Lion King. Let's praise God for these wonderful gifts that we hold in our hands that we can celebrate and uh, give to him and, and, and be grateful uh, for to him. So we see in Elizabeth and Zechariah's hands, hands that hold. 
The neighbours and relatives also want a piece of the action, don't they? Notice how prominent a role they try to play in the parts that they can grab hold of. We read, On the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. That was the plan. That's what usually happened. Eighth day, circumcision, according to Abraham's example, is part of the covenant, um, showing that they were connected and covenanted to God. And the naming usually took place at birth in Jewish homes, but perhaps here they had followed the Greek or Roman custom at the time. In any case, the relatives and neighbours just assumed that this baby would have as its name the family name like Bob Roberts or Magnus Magnuson, Donald MacDonald, this would be Zechariah Jr. Elizabeth, in response to their assumption that the baby would be called Zechariah, says firmly, no, he shall be called John. They say, well, none of your relatives are called by this name. That's what usually happened. That's what was expected. Well, the neighbours and relatives had their own perceptions. They had traditions to upkeep, they wanted to play their part, but this was no normal birth. This was no normal family now. This was not a normal situation. Elizabeth, and especially Zechariah, had to have hands that let go. This is our second point. They had hands that let go. Elizabeth and Zechariah were doing things in a different way, outside of the norm now, out with expectations. They were part of something new. They were part of a new kind of family. They were parents, so naturally they would have wanted to hold on to the, the birth process, to the naming process, to the, the raising up process. But they realised that they had to let go. That this was their child, of course, but that this was not primarily their child, not only their child. Zechariah had been told otherwise. He had had nine months of reflecting and thinking about this. The angel who had appeared to him previously had appeared to him like a dream, who had said that they would be pregnant, who had made him question his own sanity until Elizabeth began to show, had told them about this baby. And so they'd been told about a baby and most of what they'd been told was outside of their control. It would be a son. He'd be great before the Lord. Many would rejoice at his birth. He'd be filled by the Holy Spirit while in Elizabeth's room. He would turn the hearts of Israel to God and make a people prepared. All this was outside of their control. Those things were outside of their hands. These things were outside of their control. But as Zechariah replayed this conversation with the angel over and over again, he knew one thing. They had to name the baby John. This was his call. You could say that Elizabeth and Zechariah really... Zechariah had just one job. Elizabeth had another important job to like give birth to the baby, but Zechariah had one job. You shall call his name John. He had nine months to mull this over. As each milestone happened, another penny dropped. Elizabeth started feeling sick. Okay, maybe I did see that angel. Elizabeth started to show. Okay, maybe I'm not going mad. Elizabeth starts um, to feel the baby kick. Okay, we didn't have curry last night, so it must be the baby in there. Then Mary comes, the baby leaps for joy. Elizabeth starts prophesying, Messiah is coming. And Zechariah is probably freaking out. Stay calm, just remember, John, John, John. You've got to name him John. The Lord is gracious, the Lord is gracious, the Lord is gracious. With each development, Zechariah realises John is a gift of grace. 
With each development, Zechariah realises that John is not just for him and for Elizabeth. John is not for him to hold on to. As much as he might want to, Zechariah begins to see that he had to have hands that let him go. Verse 62. The neighbours and relatives made signs to Zechariah, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And Zechariah asks for a writing tablet. It was an apple seed iPad minus 3000 and he writes on it, I have one job, John, John, John. So he takes a small board covered with wax, which is what it was, and probably shaking, he writes this. His name is John. Note that it's no longer his name shall be John or it might be John, or it should be John. This is emphatic and decisive and conclusive. His name is John. Or more literally, John is his name. And so the people wonder. They're amazed, they're confused. How does this iPad work? Can I play my games on it? No, they suspect something strange is happening. And they know it's strange because immediately when um, the name is given, Zechariah's mouth is opened, his tongue is loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. After months and months of silence, after the indignity of becoming mute, so soon after the dignity of being chosen by Lot to enter the temple, after confirming the baby's name, the angel of the Lord had given him to name the child. His mouth is open again. What's going on here? Well, firstly, it's an illustration of what had been going on with Israel. There had been silence. No prophet had spoken. God seemed to have shut his mouth for too long. They yearned for revelation, for God to speak. But there had been 400 years of silence. With the opening of Zechariah's mouth, God is doing a new thing. We are insiders here. But as people ask, what then will this child be? We have the inside scoop. The Messiah, the Christ, was coming. John was going to prepare the way. But that's not all that was going on. Luke's story here um, sees the bigger picture, but also, secondly, the personal hopes and fears of ordinary people. Mary, Elizabeth, Zechariah are real people on a spectrum of, of faith and of doubt, called to trust God in this new moment of history. It's a sign of Luke's skill as storyteller, but also of the nature of God whose story he is telling that both the big picture and the smaller human stories matter completely. Zechariah's silence and subsequent speaking shows us that God cares about each human story. It reminds me of Psalm 36 in the message version. It says this, God's love is meteoric, his loyalty astronomic, his purpose is titanic, his verdicts oceanic, yet in his largeness nothing gets lost. Not a man, not a mouse slips through the cracks. Whatever God is doing in the bigger picture of history, his story and your story matters. Your story is never too small to count or to matter. When I preached on Zechariah last time, I asked this question or, or offered the possibility that this enforced silence of um, Zechariah might not have been or only have been judgment or punishment, but invitation or preparation. It feels like for Zechariah, this enforced silence was an invitation to trust. An invitation to trust God, to grow in that trust, to have time set aside to grow in that trust. What if this enforced silence was preparing Zechariah to lose his father's voice in John's life? 
What if it was an invitation to let go of his son before he was born? Certainly, there was a movement from the angel Gabriel saying, you shall call his name John, to Elizabeth saying, no, he shall be called John, to finally Zechariah writing, his name is John. And as he writes this down, his silence ends, his voice returns. There's a connection, can you see, uh, between this act of faith, John is his name, to faith, obedience, to surrender, rather than to custom or tradition or to his dreams of having a little Zechariah running around. He calls him John, letting go of the one right or privilege that he had as father concerning the birth of his son. After he got to hold his son, he realises that he has to let go of his son. Zechariah's hands that get to hold become hands that have to let go. This period of silence seems symbolic. Zechariah was a priest whose job involves speaking. He teaches people the word of God. He blesses, he pronounces, but God turns his microphone off. In this nine months of silence, he loses his primary identity of work. He would have been on sick leave or at least have been given menial non-speaking tasks to do. But in those nine months, something happens within him. It bubbles out of the blessing and prophecy that uh, Preston will preach on next week. But this period of silence has required Zechariah to surrender. And as his voice returns and his tongue is loosed, it's a representation, I think, of his own loosened hands and grip. The declaration, his name is John, seems to be an acting out externally of what's internally going on in him. There's a poem by Ted Loder called Help Me Listen that seems to capture what must have been going on in his life. O Holy One, I hear and say so many words, yet yours is the word I need. Speak now and help me listen. And if what I hear is silence, let it quiet me. Let it disturb me. Let it touch my need. Let it break my pride. Let it shrink my certainties. Let it enlarge my wonder. He's John. He's God's. He's not Zechariah Jr. Zechariah realises he's not primarily mine. He lets his hands go and surrender. He surrenders his own life and his son's life as well. All the dreams that he had of a son being a, a football player or winning a Nobel Prize or being a high priest like he never became, he surrenders. All the dreams that he had of being father of the year, of being the main voice in John's life, of being a normal dad to a normal son, he had to surrender, he had to let go. And in these nine months of silence, he had to let go. Nine months and eight days, maybe he needed those extra eight days, but finally he was able to say, his name is John, he lets go. The silence seemed to be an invitation to let go of his son before he was born. It also seems to be preparing Zechariah to lose his father's voice in John's life. Zechariah loses his voice. John, on the other hand, was going to be the voice. Not like the TV show with the great singers who don't look like great singers, but Zechariah would have been okay with that kind of voice. No, John was going to be a voice like it says in Luke chapter three, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John was not going to be your average child. He would eat locusts and honey, we are told, and be dressed with clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt. He was going to be a straight-talking sharpshooter who loved the wilderness. At the end of this chapter, chapter 1, it says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. But he was going to be the voice preparing the way. How would Zechariah be a fatherly voice in John's life? Perhaps God was graciously preparing Zechariah to realise that he was going to have a different kind of voice in John's life. Not the customary one, not the authoritarian um, one that he would usually have. You see, John was going to be like you'd want a prophet to be. Kind of like Jeremiah or Elijah, cool and quirky, kind of crazy. But not exactly what you would want your child to be. Maybe Zechariah was being prepared Not to say, even though he wanted to say, I've told you a hundred times, John, stop eating those locusts. You've got a perfectly good dinner in here. Or saying to to John, stop pestering those camels, put on some real clothes. He was going to have to rein that in. He wasn't going to be the voice that would say that to him. God has sent the one who was going to prepare the way of the Lord. But God had first to prepare the way of Zechariah's heart. He was graciously doing that. God wanted not just obedience and outward righteousness. God wanted Zechariah's open hands of surrender. God wanted Zechariah's hands to let go of his own son and his own voice. And that's hard. It's really quite poignant that Zechariah had to do this. It's quite like Mary and Joseph had to do with Jesus when they thought they had lost him back in Jerusalem when they'd been travelling for two days. But he was at the temple, he calls his father's house, and suddenly they remember, oh yeah, he's got a different home. He's got a different father. We need to let him go. I realise I need to do this. Let me give an example from my own life. Josiah has just started uh, kindergarten. I like to uh, consider myself quite a cool and collected customer. But I also realise I've been brought up in the school of tiger and helicopter parenting. I drop off Joey uh, most mornings and I've started hanging out with some of the other dads who are there. We stand outside the classroom window once the bell has gone and we peer inside. Now we realise this is a little weird and um, a, a bit like stalking and so we talk about sports for a while. But really we just want to see what happens inside the class. As parents, we've gone from knowing what our kids do all day, every day, to having six hours of every day, not knowing what they're doing, having no idea of what they've done. One of the dads recently said, I don't like not knowing what he does in there because I want him to have a perfect life. And when he's in there, I can't do anything about it. That's got me thinking a lot recently. What do I want for my son? Or what do I want from him for me? I can't give him a perfect life. Surely I can only prepare him for an imperfect life. So what am I doing when I worry about him? If I'm trying to give him a perfect life, I'm going to be disappointed because life isn't perfect. I'm going to be preparing the road for the child rather rather than preparing my child for the road. 
I'm going to be trying to live my life through him. I'm going to try and get him to be all I wish I had been. I'm going to try and find identity and happiness through him. I'm going to put pressure on him to be who I want and not who he is. In other words, I'm going to ruin his life. If I hold on to him too tightly, it's not going to be good. He's going to have all my insecurities and this is not a good plan. It is said, if we don't transform our pain, we'll definitely transmit it, usually to those closest to us. I can't give him a perfect life. I can't even give myself a semi-perfect life. My hands are limited. Surely I can only prepare him for an imperfect life and surrender my own control and realise I only have him on trust for God. That Miriam and I are just stewards. And as I let go of him, I believe that I will be a better dad because of that. The burden will be off. He'll be able to be who he's supposed to be, not just my impression of him. As I let go, I believe that it'll be better for him, for me. So let's turn the camera on ourselves here. What might God be calling you to let go of? To surrender and not just outwardly obey him on? What does he want to do in your heart? What do you need to make the connection between of what you're letting go of and what he's needing to do in your life? What's tightly grasped in your hand right now? The microphone is taken from Zechariah. For us, it might be a steering wheel, a stock market portfolio, a busy social calendar, a perfectly working body, a perfect academic record, a dutifully obedient child, or being an eligible future spouse. What grip of your hands needs to be gently opened? What is failure and loss inviting you into? More than that, what are you being called to surrender like Zechariah had to do with John? Like Zechariah had to surrender when he lost his voice, his job, his identity, his power, his expectations and his hopes. David Benner, a Christian psychologist and writer, says this. The truth is that we must all surrender to something or someone. To refuse to surrender to God is to surrender to addiction and to the illusion of being in control. He contrasts obedience with obedience from the heart. While there is external righteousness, there is actually a righteousness of the heart. God wants our hearts, not just our wills. And so he continues, surrender is the foundational dynamic of Christian freedom. Surrender of my efforts to live my life outside the grasp of God's love and surrender to God's will and gracious spirit. Relying on the will to make things happen keeps us focused on the self. Live, uh, life lived with resolve and determination is life lived apart from surrender. It is living with clenched fist doggedness. doggedness. It is living the illusion that I can be in control. It is the rule of life lived in the kingdom of self. Willingness, on the other hand, involves release of control. Symbolised by open hands, it is the surrender of my autonomy and my will. It is the giving up my illusory quest for control. And it is relinquishment of the keys of the kingdom of self. End quote. It is saying to God, not my will, but yours be done. You see, we are called to surrender. We are called to open our hands. We have hands that hold. We have hands that must let go. But we must know who we surrender to. It's a different set of hands. 
It's hands that do not let go. That's our third section, our third point here. Hands that do not let go. Because I know what you're thinking, because I think it too. Surrender is for wimps. How can I trust anybody after what's happened to me? Well, if the English word surrender implies putting one's full weight on someone or something, it involves letting go, a release of effort, tension and fear, and it involves trust. But who can we trust? David Benner's uh, book that I'm quoting a lot from is not called Surrender. It's called Surrender to Love. Here's what he says. Surrender to anything other than love would be idiocy. Alarm bells should go off when we hear of people surrendering to abusive relationships. Surrender involves too much vulnerability to be a responsible action in relation to anything other than unconditional love. Ultimately, of course, this means that absolute surrender can only be offered to perfect love. Only God deserves absolute surrender because only God can offer dependable love. No other love is worthy of our surrender. Surrender to lesser gods will always become a source of bondage, not a spring of vitality. End quote. Surrender to love. It's the title of this book. That's what we're called to. Don't just let go and release your grip unthinkingly. Let go of it and place it in the hands of, of perfect love. It is in letting go of our own grasp and surrendering to God's holding that life comes. The promise of the Bible, the promise of Jesus coming is this, that what you let go of will be in better hands than your own. That when you surrender yourself to perfect love, you are in hands that will never let you go. Let me say that again. What you let go of, when you let go of it to God, will be in better hands than your own. That what you surrender yourself to perfect love, that when you surrender yourself to perfect love, you are in hands that will never let you go. Zechariah's hands physically hold on to John at his birth, but his hands also let go of John as he gives him his name. The good news is that he discovers something as he lets go. That in surrendering his own desires for his son, he is releasing them into hands that will not let him go. He releases John into hands that are bigger, better, faster, stronger than his own. The final line of our passage is a bit of commentary from Luke. He says this first, And fear came on all their neighbours when they saw what had happened. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? Then Luke gives some commentary on John's life. He says this, For the hand of the Lord was with him. The hand of the Lord was with John. John was born in such a way that people around him said, what then shall this child be? And he lived a life so remarkable that Luke says the hand of the Lord was with him. The hand of who? God's hand. Not primarily Zechariah's or Elizabeth's. God's hand was with him. Zechariah surrenders his own desires for his life. His hands let go of his hopes for John and he finds that as he does, John is in better hands. God's hand is with him. At one level, the hand is simply the wriggly thing at the end of your arm which is used 
primarily but not exclusively to kind of give high fives. But of course, when we use the word hand, we often mean it uh, in more than a physical sense. The hand is metaphor for action, care, possession. In the Bible, the hand of God means something even more profound. God's invisible and intangible hand with you means leading, guiding, encouraging, protecting, strengthening and giving courage. Now this is beautiful. Zechariah's hands let go of his hopes for John and he finds as he does, John is in better hands. God's hand is with him. Now, it's beautiful, but it's not clean cut. It's very messy. It would have been very hard for John's parents. John was preparing the hearts of Israel for something new. But not by cuddling them into change or molly coddling the nation. He was going to prod people with truth. He was going to ruffle feathers. He was going to get people's backs up. He was going to call the Pharisees a brood of vipers. And John's head finally would get put on a platter. It was messy and clean cut, you could say. He's literally beheaded because of his ministry. And so Zechariah's surrender was was costly. It was not all roses or scholarships or father-son races at school. It would have been hard on his heart. And yet, and yet, there was a new sense of God's hand on his life, a new sense of surrender to God, not characterised by comfort or preference or the easy life, but a dogged desire and determination to live a life of purpose and consequence under the hand of God. What kind of hand is this? Can we trust this hand? What's the kind of hand that doesn't take us out of the world, pluck us out, or say that life's going to be easy, but says, I am with you? My hand is with you, my hand is on you, no matter what, no matter what you're going through. What would it look like if you and I believed this? What if it was possible for the Lord's hand to be with you and for you to still suffer, to die, to get shunned, to feel pain, to feel rejection? How would that change your view of suffering? How would you be able to enter it into it differently if that were the case? Whose hands Will you trust? Einstein is said to ask this question, Albert Einstein. I think the most important question facing humanity is, is the universe a friendly place? This is the first and most basic question all people must answer for themselves. For if we decide that the universe is an unfriendly place, then we will use our technology, our scientific discoveries and our natural resources to achieve safety and power by creating bigger walls to keep out the unfriendliness and bigger weapons to destroy all that which is unfriendly. And I believe that we are getting to a place where technology is powerful enough that we may either completely isolate or destroy ourselves as well in this process. If we decide that the universe is neither friendly nor unfriendly and that God is essentially playing dice with the universe, then we are simply victims to the random toss of the dice and our lives have no real meaning or purpose. End quote. What kind of hand will you trust? What hand will you surrender to, either willingly or because you have no choice? What if there is a possibility even better than a a friendly universe? What if there's a loving God who doesn't hold dice in his hands, but runs to meet us? And as he embraces us, he holds us in himself and says, I am with you. 
I've been trying to experience more of what it means to be a beloved son. I've realized that I, I believe that, that God is a loving father, but I don't actually know what it feels like to be a beloved son. And so in the past few days, past few weeks, I've been freeze framing in my imagination what it must have been like to have been the prodigal son being embraced by the prodigal father. Freeze framing it, just dwelling in it, allowing it to affect me, to change me. And it's good. Benner continues, Christian surrender is saying yes to God's yes to me. It begins as I experience his wildly enthusiastic, recklessly loving affirmation of me. It grows out of soaking myself in this love so thoroughly that love for God springs up in response. Surrender to his love is the work of the Spirit, making his love ours and his nature ours. This is the core of Christian spiritual transformation. Surrender to God flows out of the experience of love that will never let me go. It is the response of the heart that knows that since God is for me, nothing can come between me and the perfect love that surrounds me and will support me regardless of my effort, my response, or even my attention. John Newton, the former slave trader who was forever changed when his life was turned around by the hand of Jesus on his life, wrote this. How unspeakably wonderful to know that all our concerns are held in hands that bled for us. How unspeakably wonderful to know that all our concerns, all our life, all our hopes and dreams, all our fears, all our expectations are held in hands that bled for us. So let's let go of those things in our lives that we are to let go of and surrender them to God because they are in better hands. And as we let go of our own lives and surrender them to God, know that they are firmly held in hands that won't let you go, in hands that have bled for you.